Welcome to Conflict Managed. I'm your host, Mary Brown. Today on Conflict Managed, we are joined by Jeff Harnois, CEO of iBridged. Jeff is passionate about helping people and teams reach new heights in performance and relationships. With a focus on understanding current state through key psychometrics like MBTI and Everything Disc, Jeff and his team focus on enabling individuals, leaders, and teams to find their maximum effectiveness as people and professionals. As the CEO of iBridged, the work often focuses on building trust, engaging in healthy conflict, gaining key commitment, accountability for self and others, and how to operationalize results. Jeff has enjoyed many rewarding and successful career opportunities from individual contributor to executive leadership with Fortune 500 companies and startup ventures alike. Working with companies like Apple, Amazon, Google, Hewlett-Packard, AT&T, Symantec, Kodak, Microsoft, and Bank of America has given Jeff a unique perspective that add rich experiences to share and leverage with clients. Good morning, Jeff, and welcome to Conflict Managed. Good morning, Mary. How are you? I'm well. It's so nice to meet you. I would like to start with learning about you and with your first work experiences. Can you tell us the first job you ever had? Yeah, the the first job that I ever had was uh, doing construction cleanup for a variety of folks, including some family members who were who were building houses professionally, and going in and and really learning about how to make sure that the job site was clear, enabling them to do their jobs. So you worked with family. How old were you at this time? Yeah, I, I started really young. I was I was. 10 or 11 years old uh, when I started when I started getting paid for for helping out how was that working and how long did you do that yeah it wasn't it wasn't very long it was more you know summer type of activity uh, in terms of how you know how it was it was interesting working for a family also um, you know as I reflect back on it the expectations they had for me in terms of work standards versus what a what an eleven year old sees as a work standard, there was definitely a difference there, and and I think it contributed a little bit to my own self awareness about what you know how I wanted to show up. Oh, that's really interesting. So, after working for in the summer for your family, what did you move on to? Yeah, actually, my my next um, sort of big role was also working for a family. My father had a janitorial service that he started, and in high school, I did a lot of work with him, um, especially after I got my driver's license and had that independence. I was able to, you know, essentially have a route of of shops that I would work in for him um, all through high school. You know, it's interesting when we think about first jobs and the bosses that we've had, because the bosses that we've had are really formative uh, one way or the other when when we're younger, but you're working for family, you're working for your father. What kind of boss was he? What a good question. Um, my dad was um, very introverted, you know, for lack of a, a better frame, but he was he was pretty serious and pretty focused. And one of the things that I, I think one of the traits or lessons or combination of those things that I picked up from my dad was it really doesn't matter what the problem is, we're going to we're going to solve it. And so there was, a, you know, I think under the theme of the show must go on kind of, you know, that that approach, it just didn't matter what went wrong. We were going to serve our clients no matter what we were going to get the job done that we had promised that we were going to do. Wow, that's such a wonderful attitude to have. And it makes sense from a business owner, right? If you want to keep your business going, 
the show must go on. You will push forward and you then expect to have problems that are going to arise with, with what, and all the different ways in which problems present themselves. And with that mindset, well, we're just going to push through instead of throw our hands in the air. I mean, that's not really an option if you want to stay in business. Mm-hmm, exactly. Exactly. I mean, our, our entire livelihood was, was connected to this work and um, you know, small business owners, if you don't work, you, you don't get paid. And if you don't get paid, you don't eat. And so, you know, it's, it's kind of important. Right. It imbues work as not just, you know, something that as a young person, a lot of times uh, young people, they are working for the weekend, right? They work on the weekends to make money to go out later or whatever. It's a really different perspective to think about work in this maybe more holistic way, uh, a kind of important way. And so not just the work, but the kind of work you're doing, because again, as a small business owner, you're constantly being judged on the quality of the work you just did. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, there was a lot of competition. And, you know, you think about industry, janitorial services are generally on the lower end of that scale. Um, and there were a lot of, you know, potential vendors that our clients could choose from. And so really delivering a great level of service every time um, was was one of the things that, you know, sort of distinguished us from our competition. So where did you go after working for your father? Yeah, from there, I went into my first retail role. I was working for a company called Beacon Oil. You may have seen some of the gas stations. You were in Southern California. This company was headquartered in Visalia, so you may be familiar with them as a result of it. They had uh, some, uh, they had a a few, a few of their stores had tire stores associated. Uh, I was living in Redding, California at the time where we had some extreme weather um, patterns. You know, it was not unusual for it to be somewhere between 112 and 115 degrees in the summertime and, and, you know, literally freezing in the winter, but we kept the door open and we were servicing customers top to bottom throughout that, that period of time. And our busiest time of the year was in the summer when it was hot. And of course we had our, our big summer sale and it was sort of the event of the year. And we were literally, you know, doing the physical manual labor without air conditioning in the heat for 10 hours a day. Yeah. So learned, learned a lot about sort of resiliency and what it takes to maintain that low level of energy. And yeah, it was, it was a crazy time. Yes, absolutely. So you went on through your, through your career. What can you just sort of tell us a little bit about where your career trajectory has gone and where you've ended up now? Yeah, I, I, um, the job at Beacon ultimately led to a, a store manager role in Fairfield, California. And from there, um, that was a store that was failing when I took over. And in fact, the uh, the entire staff had been terminated for a, a variety of reasons. And so I took the store over without any staff and, and rebuilt the staff while, while continuing to maintain the operation and turned the store from, from red to black and made it consistently profitable after a couple of years of losing money. And they, the, the organization really liked that. And they had another store in Santa Clara, which is ultimately what brought us to the Bay Area. Living in Santa Clara at the time, and actually currently still, but at the time was really, really expensive for you know someone on a retail salary. I was a young father. Um, we had two small children in a marriage. And 
you know, it really came down to economics. My wife had to work. And so everybody who would come through my shop to, to get their, their car serviced, I would say to them, hey, how are you? Um, where do you work? And are they hiring? And um, <laughs> one lady said, well, you know, gosh, I work for Apple Computer and I'm in human resources. And um, yeah, if your wife is interested, she should, you know, she should ping me. My wife and I both didn't have any sort of formal education after high school. And um, so it was kind of a big leap. And we made the connection. My wife got the job and it was like, well, huh, here's my wife working as, as a receptionist for a company. She was only making a few hundred dollars a month less than me. And I'm running a 12 hour retail operation seven days a week. And I thought, okay, this, something's got to change here, you know, and also trying to raise two small children and, and, you know, sort of being energetically exhausted after, you know, full weeks like that. I went back to that very same lady that my wife ended up um, working for and saying, Hey, you know, what about me? And she got me into a role at Apple computer as an inventory control coordinator, very much an entry level role working in a warehouse but I was, you know, all of a sudden making hundreds of dollars more per month, able to work only five days a week and able to work regular hours. And I felt like I was in heaven. So that's kind of where I started my professional career at Apple. I had a variety of roles um, from program management. I ended up growing that program to a point where I had over 800 people around the company or sorry, around the country who were doing work in retail organizations reporting into me. I left that particular role and took a role as a product manager in the organization. My product was Apple Care. You may or may not be familiar with that. Yes, yes. Yeah. And so I managed that and warranty policy for the organization. One of my vendors in this role was a company at the time called Audia, which was another Fortune 50 company. And um, they, they, they've switched to a deco. So you may know them by, by that branding. They were doing about, I want to say, $15 billion annually on a global basis. And they hired me to be the VP of sales for the technology division. And, you know, I, I know the topic here is conflict. That was a role that had a lot of conflict associated. And, and boy, was it uncomfortable, but rich from a learning perspective. Um, had some success in the role. I was there for about 18 months. I ended up closing a, a very, very large uh, deal with AT&T Wireless at the time and was having a lot of success in the role. And ironically, another vendor that I had been working with at Apple came back and said, gosh, Jeff, we didn't even know you were thinking about leaving Apple. If we would have known, we would have, you know, we would have wanted to talk about that in more detail. And so when, you know, when the conflicts at ADECO were, is the way that I would frame it is when they were above my skill level in being able to deal with it, I thought I, I need to make a change. And so I went back to this other vendor, a company out of New York uh, doing marketing, field marketing services, and took the role of VP of sales for, for that organization. After a couple of years, that company got sold and I decided to um, co-found a, a little technology company with a, a friend of mine. And um, we started a company called James Allen Group Technologies. And this, you know, this goes back a ways, but we were, we were developing what we, at the time, something called video on demand as a product 
at the time when it didn't exist. Today, it's common. You see YouTube and you know all of the channels that have video, and you, you see the little controls that allow you to pause and fast forward. That didn't exist on the internet back when we were when we were building it, and so we designed those features in our, in, in our engine, and um, had some some interesting success, and decided to move on from there. Did some work around finance and mortgage and commercial mortgage and that sort of thing. Went back to corporate America and did some some sales for a, a content creator, and then about six years ago created iBridge, and that's where we are today. Wow! When you think about your very varied work experience, what strikes you as the best experience you've had, and what was so good about it, either with an organization or an individual? Yeah, that's such a such a good question because. Even even in organizations where at times things weren't going well, they were rich from a learning experience and a shaping you know shaping contribution to who I am. But ultimately, um, I like to tell people I'm in exactly the right place, doing exactly the right thing because it is the best. And specifically with iBridge, um, we started out helping folks from a career standpoint understanding you know how to how to package yourself for the market how to understand your value proposition and then how to articulate that and so i think because of my sales and sales leadership background applying that to the career journey helping people understand you are the product that you're bringing to market you should be able to sell yourself and a lot of my clients are highly technical highly accomplished um, individuals who don't necessarily understand that component. And when we put that together, when we help them see themselves as a product and as a value proposition, and then they start talking about their impact, and this is a this is kind of a big key. They talk about their impact versus regurgitating their job description, having tremendous success in, in you know landing the roles that they want. From there we we moved on to um, a lot of these folks are in leadership roles. So how do we help them succeed in leadership roles? And so now we have team products, we have leadership development services, we help people understand executive presence and EQ and, and really that whole spectrum, executive communications, really that whole spectrum to help them f- from that leadership perspective outside of their subject matter of expertise. And so again, to your question, what do I love? You know, I actually have hundreds of examples of, you know, where that went really well. But I think overall, the idea of helping people transform from a place where they're just like everyone else to a place where they, they've really, they really see themselves in an elevated position. It's absolute gold for me. That is so wonderful. It's, I, I asked this question to quite a few people and I love their responses. And many times people will talk about a golden period of their life or everything gelled and the, the people and the organization and the work. And it's, um it's very winsome and it's lovely to have those experiences, but what a blessing it is to be living at that time, right? To be living in those experiences. And I felt very similar. So I changed careers a couple of years ago. I taught philosophy for over 20 years and I feel like all of my experiences in the classroom, out of the classroom, have put me to where I am now. And and uh, if somebody asked me that question, I would say the best experience is the one I'm living right now. Mm, well said. 
Well said. Absolutely true for me. And I, you know, again, I think upon reflection, there were there were there were good times all through throughout that arc, and there were some really really challenging times that were uncomfortable or even distasteful. But they've all contributed to where I am today. And I love you've said this a couple of times, but you said uncomfortable but rich. And mm-hmm. you know, a lot of us know that we grow when things are hard, or at least there's the potential to grow through the hard times. Of course, you've encountered conflicts or difficulties in the your relationships and the organizations that you've been in. Maybe if you could talk about how you reframe that for yourself, because many times we tell ourselves when we're caught in a conflict, uh, we we tell ourselves a negative story about being stuck, about being powerless. But this reframing ability to to notice that it's uncomfortable, but also to look for the richness either presently or to come. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, I I think probably, I love this question, by the way. I think at the, at the front end of the entire process, there's a really important self-talk track that, I, that I've introduced, which is, this is only temporary. And really understanding that it doesn't matter how awful it is, it's going to end at some point. And I think what that does is it triggers a little bit of hope. And when you have a little bit of hope, even in negative situations, you can start thinking about and envisioning what the future is going to look like. But it has to start by giving yourself permission to say, this is just, this is temporary. It's awful. And, I, you know, not only do I not like it, I never want to do it again, but it's only temporary. That's the, that's sort of the first self-talk trend. The second thing, and, and I'm not always good at this while I'm in the heat of the moment, but looking for the learning opportunity. What, what is this trying to teach me? What gap in my game is being filled by this test? And I've gotten better at that as I've aged. Um, I, I definitely wasn't good at that early on. But as I've sort of developed that skill to ask the question, what am I supposed to be learning from this? It sort of put me in a mode of, of inquiry and curiousness, which again, allowed me to sort of separate you know, the distastefulness of it or the discomfort of, of the event that was happening and sort of allow the other side of my brain to activate and say, okay, let's be opportunistic about this awful problem. Let's turn it into something good. And I think the third component is doing that with intention, right? Really, really doing it on purpose. And ultimately, again, it, 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 doesn't, it doesn't necessarily minimize how awful the situation is, whatever that is, but it does allow you to extract some value. Yes. Gosh, I agree with everything that you've just said. And I am loath to minimize the discomfort because you know, some people want to talk about confident conversations or they want to take the difficult out of the conversation or the difficult out of the conflict. And I think, Why? People know if it's hard, it's hard. If it's hard for them, if it's really, really difficult. And we know that people suffer tremendously psychologically and physically from things that happen at work or from from, um, unmanaged conflicts, toxic work environments. And, And so a lot of times, as you said, people lose hope. It's this disempowering that people this, that that people experience a lot of times as you said when they think this is this is it this is the situation and they don't see that it's temporary but as you said everything is temporary power is temporary position is temporary whatever you're in it will pass the good and the bad everything is 
passing. That's the nature of existence, right? Yeah. Which I think sometimes it's hard when you love what's going on. Uh, when my all three kids were home two weekends ago, and I enjoyed that so much that knowing it's temporary, which ac- mm-hmm. actually can add to the sweetness of it. Um, mm-hmm. Recognizing that this is to be enjoyed and savored because it is only temporary. That's that's exactly what was going through my mind when you said, you know, we can focus on the negative being temporary, but also counterbalancing that with when things are going really well, you should also sort of appreciate that, you know, this is this is a moment in time and it, and it too can change. And I do think that ultimately that informs us to, to have gratitude and appreciation for when things are going well. And, and that is that is one of the cornerstones and the backbone of resiliency from my perspective. Right. And this idea that a lot of times when we're caught in a conflict or a difficult situation, we do feel disempowered because we have lost hope or we feel like it's going to be forever and we don't know what the next step is, but developing those skills, becoming resilient is about being empowered and not being taken over by the circumstance. And that's that intentionality, right? So if I'm going to, intentionally say, yeah, this is difficult. What can I learn? Whatever it is that we need to give us a true perspective so that we can make it through and not just make it through, but see what we can learn and not be taken down by it, but rather overcome in the sense of being empowered. I mean, that's just, I guess when I think about conflict resolution, I think about it as being intentional and present in your life and not giving it over to somebody else to solve, to fix, to manage, to decide. But as Aristotle likes to say, the best life is the active life. And the active life is not doing a bunch of stuff, but actively deciding and engaging and curating your life and your experiences and not letting the outside, the things you can't control, control you. Yeah. You know, I, I, I there's a parallel for me in, in what you just said that is is really resonating. It's one of the pieces of advice that I give my my clients on the career side very often. I don't know if it's if if I would call it a philosophy, but there's a thought that comes from sort of the blue collar <clears throat> upbringing that a lot of people have that if you work hard, you'll be taken care of. And the truth is that's that's pure fallacy. And the reason the connection that I want to make to your comment is you must actively manage and control your career because no one is going to do that for you. It doesn't matter how hard you work. It doesn't matter how smart you are. It doesn't matter how talented you are. You must take steps to manage your career. You must take steps to manage your reputation. You must constantly be learning and skill building and really positioning yourself to add value to whatever organization, whether it's your own or someone else's. Um, to add value to those organizations, but you 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 can't you can't hand the reins of that off to someone. In in this particular case around career, not only is no one there to take it, nobody wants to do that. <laughs> I think that's really powerful because you know, we have most people have this really strong sense of justice that if I do the work, it will be noticed and it'll be noticed and then I will move up or I will get the next thing. But as you said, that is absolutely not how it works. And People get frustrated and um, demoralized because they feel like somebody isn't 
doing it. But then again, that's in a disempowering position. Nobody else is going to do it. You have to advocate for yourself. You have to ask. You have to put yourself out there. But I think that's also very exciting that you get to be the one. You get to be. And that means you also get to be more intentional about your choices and what you want because you have to clarify it and get clear and then take those steps. I was in that, I think, disempowering position before. I told myself the story. I live in a small town in West Tennessee. I'm not going to be moving for a variety of reasons. There isn't any opportunity for a philosopher who's not teaching, right? And there weren't opportunities when I had that mindset. When I changed my mindset, oh my word, there are so many opportunities and so many people to meet. And like you and I, we are thousands of miles apart and getting to have this wonderful conversation. Yeah, yeah. I love this idea of the empowerment uh, of taking the choice of not handing reins off. And to your point, I think when individuals understand that not only is it an opportunity, but it's also a bit of an obligation, right, to, to sort of make those decisions, great things can happen. And so, you know, just out of curiosity, when I work with my clients, I try to understand where where did this idea come from that you were going to allow someone else to sort of take charge of that for you? And um, interestingly, you know, some subset of that group, a portion of that group, it does come down to the fear of conflict. They don't want to raise their head. They don't want to raise their flag and say, hey, look at me, I'm doing great work. You should consider me for promotion for fear of that creating some sort of conflict. And so I understand that that, that also is you know, one of the mechanisms that holds people back. Well, Jeff, in your work, you do psychometrics assessments and a variety of other sort of psychological assessments. Can you tell us about, about why you do those, how important it is for helping people deal with conflict and just being better at their jobs? Mm, yeah. Gosh, I love this question too. So psychometric, the word psychometric is sort of the, you know, loosely translated into the measurement of psychology, which is really in layman's terms, assessing your personality. When, when we do these kinds of assessments, we learn so much about ourselves. I think one of the baseline benefits of a psychometric is really the idea for people to understand who they are and, and in many cases answering the question of why they behave or show up in certain ways. Um, I know it was really powerful for me from that perspective, but we also understand things like communication preferences. We understand things like um, how you normally show up or respond to conflict. We understand if you're the kind of person who creates conflict naturally versus maybe the other the other end of that spectrum. We know things about decision making and value systems and all of that kind of stuff that again is really rich and first in terms of understanding yourself, but then maybe even more importantly understanding others. So that's sort of the the baseline framing. I was first introduced to a psychometric and it was it was Myers-Briggs which is one of the oldest continuously operated assessments on the planet. My wife and I both took the assessment when we were at Apple. And gosh, this is going back you know 30 or 35 years now. In 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 February we will have been married for 40 years. 
Congratulations. And, yeah, thank you so much. And I have to tell you that I attribute a, you know, a portion of our success, our continued success in this relationship from having done the psychometrics so early. And the reason that the connection here is she had her style and I had mine and they are not the same. And so I could look at her and say, well, why are you doing it the right way? Which would be my way. And she could do the same. Why aren't you doing it the right way? Which would be her way to us being able to go, oh, I understand now why you're taking a different approach. And rather than that creating conflict because we were different, we could say, what's the opportunity to see it your way? And what can we learn when we see it each other's way? And I really do feel like that has contributed to our success in our relationship. That doesn't mean that, you know, marriage is easy. It's not. But when you understand people's communication styles and their, their approach to decision-making and conflict for that matter, it really allows you to sit back and say, wait a minute, I'm not, I'm not being attacked right now. This is my, my partner or my spouse or my friend or my boss or my colleague or my coworker. That's just how, what their style is. And then it allows me to get into this mode of, okay, what are we doing and how do we, how do we get through it? So you know, again, a lot of, a lot of, I don't know if faith is the right word, but maybe gratitude for, for having those insights at such an early, early age and contributing to that relationship. In addition to that, and, and, and I really hope you appreciate this. I went from a product management and a program management role at Apple into an executive sales role without any formal executive training, without any formal sales training. And had a lot of success doing it. How how did that happen? It was my ability to read others' styles because I had had this, this framework around psychometrics. It was my ability to read their styles, make adaptations to be able to connect with them more quickly and more deeply. Um, that allowed me to be more influential in the role. So I'm a big fan of psychometrics from, from all of those perspectives. When I started iBridged, I thought, you know, I'm, I've got to bring them into my practice here as well. And a little bit of a little different utilization with my career clients. It was really about, I want to understand who you are naturally as an individual. What I really want to understand is what are your natural strengths? Now, when I understand what your natural strengths are, we can turn that, we can get clues from that and turning that into your brand. Well, what does your brand do? Your brand separates you from everyone else who you're competing against in the role. So if we can understand that, we've got a really, really interesting place to start the conversation. The second thing is if I can help you understand sort of that same dynamic that I, that I just explained in my sales role, if I can teach you how to read people, when you go into an interview, you'll be able to understand your interviewer and make those adaptations so that you're connecting more quickly and deeply and, you know, have a positive outcome from that perspective. Is this, you know, is this the only thing or the best thing? No, it's, it, you know, it's not the main lane. This is just sort of that extra thing that, again, is going to give you the boost over the competition. So, again, we took it from that, that career perspective and that individual perspective to say, well, if you're a team leader, can you use it in that same way? Can you understand the information, communication, motivation, needs of the people that you're leading on an individual basis? If you can, it's going to make you a way more effective leader. 
not only that, but it is going to increase the satisfaction and gratification that the people you're leading are going to have with you as their leader. And really it unlocks the whole potential of the team from that perspective. And so that's that's where psychometrics have sort of played a role in who I am and, and what I do. Did, did that answer the question? Yeah, that was a great answer. You know, we talk about these so-called soft skills versus the hard skills. So somebody is fit for a job because they have the particular hardware know-how, but those so-called soft skills, emotional intelligence, and the ability to communicate, to have empathy, to meet people where they're at and work together with a diverse group. I wish we could get rid of the soft skill language because it's so eminently practical. As you said, you didn't have really the hard skills, so to speak, to do this role, but you were able to do it because we are dealing, especially with management and upper, upper management and leadership, it's dealing with people. And our job as leaders is to help people be the best that they can and to speak into their lives and to help them flourish. And that means not making everybody in your image, but coming to where they are and understanding them. So let me ask you this question. My husband, he would say things to me like, oh, Mary, they're acting that way because they're from the North or that's their personality. And I would say, but it violates civility, right? So Mm. how do you deal with that? Where some people say, well, that's just who I am. That's just my personality, and yet it seems to violate some civility clauses or or how, what it means to work together as a team. How, how do you address those issues? Oh, my gosh, Mary, this is such a phenomenal question. Wow. I, 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 and, and, and I really love the framing, too, because we never want to do an assessment and then use the results of that assessment as an excuse for, for bad or poor behavior. Um, you know, our, our organization is never going to support that. And I think what it is, is it's really understanding two things are coming to mind. First is, what are the boundaries? And so I talked earlier about, you know, focusing on teams. We, one of our programs is called the five behaviors of a cohesive team. And it's very much like having a social contract, but for teams. And so we define those boundaries in advance. And then we sort of expect others are going to, you know, honor that. And when they don't, one of our behaviors is accountability. We give everyone permission to call out behavior that is outside of what we've agreed to. And so I think that's how we operationalize it. Down on the individual level, though, it's really, really important for people to understand, again, who they are and how they show up as perceived by others. When we talk about conflict, so so I mentioned Myers-Briggs. I also use the DISC assessment, Everything DISC, uh, by a company called Wiley, uh, one of the largest publishers on the planet. And um, the the DISC, D-I-S-C, the the D-types are very mission-oriented. They're very focused on results and getting things done. As a result of that, they have what I call blinders or blind space, um, blind spots. The other analogy that I often use is they get something called target fixation. They're so focused on the target of getting the thing done that they often lose sight of the, excuse me, the interpersonal components of their work. And to others who are not their type, that looks like bad behavior. Um, It looks like sometimes even a violation of just common courtesy. 
And so it's really important for the D types to understand that that is their blind spot. And it, it sort of gives them permission to pull back from the target a little bit and go, we are still on mission. We are still focused, but I have to make sure that I'm taking care of the people that I'm working with, whether they work for me or not. And so my behavior matters here in terms of my, my efficacy and my, my ability to get the job done. But it also allows people who are not them, who are sort of, you know, interacting or being influenced by their behavior to say, I, I don't have to take this personally. I can see that that behavior isn't, it's not my style. I wouldn't be comfortable behaving in that manner, but I do understand that that's their natural style. And I can, I can now accept that they're being more direct than I would be that, that their threshold for conflict is significantly higher than my own to the point that they don't even realize that they're in conflict. But for me, it feels crazy. I can now calibrate around that. And so it sort of allows everyone to come together in, in terms of understanding each other's styles and preferences. And then the, the safety net is having that social contract for teams to be able to say, this is inbounds or this is out of bounds. Does that answer the question? Oh, that's excellent. I mean, we know expectations are king, right? And so I think something is wrong because whatever is happening is not meeting my expectations. Mm. And so you're, as you said, this person's behavior is not how I would do it. And worse, I think it's actually a violation. Mm -hmm. And that's why it's so important to have those boundaries or those employee-centric values, propositions, or however we want to talk about them so that everybody knows what is and isn't acceptable. And so I now don't need to manage that other person's behavior or responses because it, even though it's not how I prefer, not everybody's made in my image. And actually that's a good, right? That's going back to the managed conflict. If we really want to get our arms around diversity and we want to take advantage of the way, all the different ways in which people can show up to work and have our products and services be better, then we have to recognize that not everybody processes and values the things that we do, as you said, within the boundary of still what is acceptable work behavior. Mm. I, I love that you use the word diversity here because it's it's popped up a few times in my head as we've been talking. So, you know, in today's political climate, you know, diversity and inclusion seems like there's a lot of focus on it. I, I know in corporate America, you know, they organizations pat themselves on the back when they hit a certain number. You know, we've got a certain number of diversity hires. What organizations, and, and I really, really hope that they sort of evolve to this place, which is to say a cornerstone of diversity has everything to do with the individual and nothing to do with their, you know, where they originated in life or their cultural background. Cultural obviously influences that too. The point is real diversity happens at an individual level. And when we understand that people have very diverse preferences naturally, um, it, it's sort of the, the nature and nurture component of our existence. They have preferences naturally, again, communication, conflict, decision-making values, all of those things. When we can decode that for individuals, we can then create the code that allows us to take advantage of the diversity of experience that people bring to the conversation and really maximize the relationships. Absolutely. And right. So we talk about belonging. How do we get belonging? How does somebody think, you know, this place is a good place and I'm not only treated with dignity and respect, but I'm flourishing. I'm able to do great work. People, you know, psychological safety, people want to hear what I have to say. And I can say it even if I think somebody might disagree or whatever. 
How does that happen? It happens when we see individuals, right? Yeah. I absolutely believe in the power of diversity. I think that everyone should be brought to the table. And I know it's a process. And so maybe we start with numbers and we go to here and we go there. But businesses should just from a bottom line, from a numbers perspective, should really want their employees to be engaged and participating. And how do you get away from quiet quitting? talk to people, care about them, include them, mm-hmm. have them participate. Wow. What happens when you treat people? Well, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is, that's how you actually get more diversity because people want to be at places where they're treated well. And um, we can get away from categorization to the individual. And that's how you get a good team is filled with a bunch of individuals. You you mentioned belonging. And I think it really comes down to that. You can you can drive generic diversity in whatever frame you want, all all you want. But if you're not creating a receptive organization that allows people to belong there, then really what you've done is you've actually created an environment where conflict will take over. Yeah. And so the missing piece for me is making sure that yeah, you you've got your diversity targets. That's that's fantastic, but you've got to go to that next step where those people entering into the organization can belong there too. Right. And it does go back to exactly what you said. Uh, many organizations and, and teams that I've worked with, you know, experience a certain catharsis. They've been high conflict. They've been low productivity, high levels of disengagement. And when we come into those organizations and we help them understand themselves individually, what makes them special? And then teach them how to articulate that back out to the organization. And then when the whole organization does that, the belonging piece clicks. It's like, oh, I understand. I'm different and I belong here because I'm different. It's, It's phenomenal. And I like what you said about giving people skills because... Unfortunately, um, things like, you know, DEI, it's, you know, it's a once a year, you watch a set of videos or you go to some sort of session and you're done. You're like, Phew, checked off the list. Check the box, right? But this whole belonging and how do you get psychological safety? You've got to have mechanisms for the life of the organization. It's continual, intentional that we deal with conflict. We have places like or people within the organization like ombuds or conflict resolution teams, skilled individuals that can continue the learning because you don't go to a session or a week and learn about conflict and then you're good to go. It it doesn't work that way. We need to continue to not only develop our skills, but also see that the organization actually wants us to have this difficult conversation so that we need to be empowered and continually developed from the, the top all the way down, everybody, everybody needs this and it needs to be co- continually um, looked after by people who are dedicated to look after it or it falls apart because that's the nature yeah. of all things. They fall apart. Yeah. You mentioned earlier about, about expectations and then you mentioned it again. One of the expectations that we really try to promote within organizations is that, you know, conflict is not only accepted, it's expected. And the point is conflict when it's when it's in service of getting to the right answer can be really healthy. Um, Patrick Lencioni, the author of Five Dysfunctions, the Five Dysfunctions of a Team book, has this this analogy. He calls it the um, the conflict. I think he calls it the conflict scale. 
I, I may have that wrong, but it's essentially organizations where there's no conflict all the way up into what he calls hell, which is destructive, unhealthy, scar tissue creating kinds of conflict that are damaging to relationships that often have a long arc of, of continuing to, to create bad, you know, bad faith and bad vibes. And essentially what he's saying is when you move from no conflict, you're moving towards conflict. And at some point, the conflict is no longer healthy. It becomes more destructive and unhealthy. And because so many people have been exposed to being on the wrong side of that, they come back down and they, they, they restrict how far they're willing to go from a conflict standpoint. And they create something called artificial harmony. It's where we pretend that everything is okay and that everyone is okay, when in reality, that's never true. That's never true, right? Nobody, we're not all okay all the time ever, right? And so being able to understand where that line is for your team or for your organization and getting some clarity around what behaviors are healthy and, and constructive and then at what point are they they no longer and his recommendation is you've got to push right up to that line. You've got to back to, to the original point here. You've got to set an expectation that we are going to hit that line. And every once in a while, we're going to cross it. And But we're going to do it with good intention. And we're going to come back and we're going to recover. We're going to intentionally recover from going too far. We're going to make sure that people are okay. We're going to apologize for the you know our individual stepping over the line. And in that way, we actually build a lot of trust with each other. Right. Saying, oof, we can go pretty far together, right? I now have the trust in you and you and me that even if we do cross that line, we're going to come back and we're going to recover from it. And those organizations where you expect that level of conflict and then you operationalize and put the behavioral model in place, those organizations are outperforming other organizations by a, by a significant scale. Oh, that's brilliant. Brilliantly said. Well, Jeff, I have so enjoyed our conversation today, but will you tell us what you think? If you look out to the workforce in 10 years, what do you think needs to happen in the next five to 10 years to usher in healthy work environments where people are not only treated with dignity and respect, but are encouraged to thrive? Well, this is such a deep question. Um, the, you know, my, my first reaction is the Older folks in the generation are, are starting to retire out. And so their influence on the organization is going to be, you know, more and more minimized, which means that our younger generation is, is obviously going to proliferate the workforce. What I see in the younger generations today is sort of an emphasis on, well, let's use psychological safety as an example. Uh, I would, in addition to that, I would use this, this sense of comfort, maybe, which I think is comes at a tax and the tax is your resiliency to be able to sort of deal with pressure and conflict and things that are unpleasant. There seems to be, and this is purely, purely my opinion, there seems to be more of an emphasis on comfort and, you know, ease. And I think that what that's done to the younger generation is they are sort of losing that skill of being able to engage in conflict, healthy conflict for the right reasons and, and doing the right things. And so I think what needs to happen over the next five years is we really need to work on developing that skill for folks 
Because while we can intentionally create psychological safety, the world is not safe. And so while we desire that and we want that, we have to understand that that is not now or ever going to be a full reality. And so we need to build in the skills to help people deal with it when it's not safe for them. Um, And again, you know, even even psychological safety is different based on your personality type, what you need, what you want. And so, you know, setting some bar that says you're going to have to deal with some hard things. Um, You're going to have to deal with some hard people and some hard situations and you don't have to like it. We, we, we're never trying to put you in a place where you have to like that, but I would like you to have the skills to be able to manage through it. And so I think that's, that's probably singularly one of the most important things, you know, as a, as a, as a country um, that we could, we should be doing in corporate America. Oh, I absolutely love that. And you've said resiliency several times and that's how do you build resilience? If we just expect good things, happiness, comfort, and when we don't get that, something is wrong. That's a misunderstanding, wrong expectations about life and work in general. Life is filled with wonderfulness, is filled with death and suffering, and is filled with the majority of the mundane every day. Yeah. Right. And you know, we need to get our arms around that. And that is part of my mission is it's pretty simple, which is trying to normalize conflict. You're in conflict. Yeah, that's okay. You're a human person. You're with other human persons, but we can deal with it. So we don't need to flee from it. We don't need to say, you know, catastrophize, but we can recognize this is super hard. It is hard and you can do hard things and you can do this. So let's push through it. I 100% agree. That's wonderful. Awesome. Well, thank you, Jeff, so much for your time today. Mary, thank you so much. What a pleasure. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeff, for your time and being on Conflict Managed. I truly enjoyed our conversation and learned a lot. If you'd like to know more about Jeff and I Bridged, his information is in the show notes. I hope you go check him out. My new book, How to Be Unprofessional at Work, Tips to Ensure Failure, which is 80 tips of what not to do at work and to start a conversation with yourself and others about a healthy work environment. It's available from Amazon. I hope you check it out. Come back. We have new episodes every Tuesday. If there's someone you would like to see interviewed, please reach out to us. You can reach out to us at 3pconflictrestoration at gmail.com. Conflict Managed is produced by third-party workplace conflict restoration services and hosted by me, Mary Brown. Our music is courtesy of Dove Pilot. And remember, conflict is normal and to be expected. Let's deal with it. Until next time, take care.